So my wife and I have five children. They're all adults, they're all partnered. So that's 10. <clears throat> From them have come four grandchildren, so that's 14. We have a, a lovely young woman who, through our daughter, came into our family and is now functionally our daughter, and she's married, so that's 16. My wife and I is 18, which is too many. <laughs> it's just too many. <laughs> Say, for example, oh, theoretically, almost everybody's going to be in town in a couple of months, and so we want to plan a photo shoot. <laughs> I think my wife and I should just be able to say, this is the best time, please show up. <laughs> it turns out our children have lives of their own. And they are happy to inhabit those lives, even if it comes into conflict with ours. And so, if I'm too stern with that, I produce offense, feelings get hurt, and then you have to do this really complicated making up thing, right? <laughs> saying sorry, really meaning it. <laughs> and, and if that gets all patched up, you still then have to pick what you're going to wear. <laughs> and I find the same degree of complicatedness in my work setting. I'm a physician. I work at the university hospital. So I'm in a setting where you have all sorts of different kinds of people engaged in this complicated interaction. You have patients. You have caregivers. Some of the caregivers are practitioners. Some are students who are trainees. You know, so they're at various levels of proficiency, but they need experience and they need oversight. And, and then you overlay onto that complicated interaction just the complicatedness of identity. Right? We have all sorts of identities. Gender identity, ethnic identity, uh, different levels of power and influence in these systems. And it produces a lot of complication. One approach that my place of employee takes, and any larger organization will have this, is lots of online trainings, each of which goes on for hours. <laughs> They're really just trying to teach you how to be a decent human being, right? <clears throat> and so I'll find myself increasingly coming to the end of a day and just thinking human social relating is too complicated. It's just super fraught with thoughts and feelings and interactions and responses and reactions and harm and trying to fix it all. Now, in my tradition, I think the Bible is aware of this. In my growing up Christian tradition, we really you know, formed ourselves around the Ten Commandments, more than half of which were focused on human social relating. Okay, six of them. When I came into contact with my wife and her Jewish family, she scoffed at our paltry ten. They learned 613. <laughs> and so if you do the math, I don't know how many are actually related to, you know, or about human social relating, but let's say 60%, so you're somewhere around 350, which is overwhelming. But then Jewish religious scholars were very aware that that's not enough. It doesn't cover all the possible situations. And so they work hard to elaborate those commandments that we have in the text out into the lived experience of life, all the possible situations of human conflict that you might encounter and what are the rules that apply to how to deal with that. All of which thinking is lovely but doesn't help in the moment. 
right? It's an important thing to work out systems to try to understand human social relating, why it's so hard and complicated, and how we, where it goes wrong, and how do we fix that. But if I'm in the midst of a dispute, like where someone has made me mad, and I have to figure out how to behave well in that interaction, it's not going to help me to think, well, which of the 350 in their elaborations apply in this moment to kind of sort through those mentally, to pick the right ones, and to apply them in a way that works? That's just not going to help. I'm going to grind to a halt. All of human social relating would grind to a halt if we had to be that formulaic about how we did it. Well, fortunately, our text is also aware of this. It is aware that we need something simple, a distillation of the principles, a Bible cheat code for human social interaction that we can actually bring into this conversation with these hurt feelings and this sense of threat right now. Hence our story for the morning. So this comes from the Gospel of Mark, um, chapter 12, verse 28. It says, And one of the religious experts approaching, hearing them debating and perceiving that Jesus answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is first among all? So this is a conversation that happens in the, in, the, in the middle of a few others. Jesus has come into some renown in the religious social sphere as an outsider. He comes from the hill country of Judea, so north of Jerusalem, north of the religious center. <clears throat> he's an upstart, uneducated, untrained, not affirmed by the establishment, but he's become pretty successful. People are paying attention to him. And so as that, he's sort of a threat. So there are three or four prominent religious groups who then send people to test him. They send their experts, their trained folks, to ask him tough questions. What do you think about this, Jesus? Here's a theoretical problem. Hoping that Jesus will answer it wrong or answer it in a way that gets him in trouble, right? That puts him at odds with power. But this particular individual, this religious expert, has been listening to Jesus and thinking, wow, he's pretty good. He's answering these questions quite well. And so this person thinks to himself, I have a deep question, and I would like to really hear what Jesus has to say about this. I'm genuinely intrigued by Jesus' thoughts about this question. Which commandment is first among all? So we've got over 600 and their elaborations. What's number one? It says Jesus answered, the first is, hear Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God out of your whole heart and out of your whole soul and out of your whole reason and out of your whole strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is not another commandment greater than these. And the religious expert said to him, well said, teacher. You speak the truth in saying that there is one and there is no other beside that one. <clears throat> and to love that one out of the whole heart and out of the whole understanding and out of the whole of one's strength and to love the neighbor as oneself 
is more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus, seeing that he answered wisely, said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared interrogate him anymore. So these two individuals have this pretty powerful interaction in the midst of all this contentiousness, a meeting of the minds. And what Jesus produces in answer to this man's question, which is the greatest commandment, is actually, he, he says, well, there are two <laughs> that I'm going to give you. And this, you know, full disclosure, is not something that Jesus himself made up. Jesus is working with the text and the information that shaped his understanding of God, his practice, the Hebrew text, the Hebrew Bible. And so even in that text, there was this awareness, this seeming awareness. It'd be really nice to have a summary, to have something that boils it all down. And so this was a boiling down that was advocated, that was felt to be pretty good. And Jesus apparently is giving it the thumbs up. You can boil down the instructions of God to us into these two thoughts, these two thought constructs. Love the Lord your God a lot, a lot, a lot with everything you've got. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the first one's super interesting, but for my question of the day, how do I get along, how do I navigate complicated social interaction, we're paying attention to the second one. So love your neighbor as yourself sums up all of these instructions about human social relating. So it sounds interesting, right? It's nice, it's short, it's what we want it to be, kind of pithy, feels lovely in its own way. And I can see how it could be helpful, but the trouble for me is that even with this one, I pretty quickly get into kind of a cognitive quandary because I have to start to figure it out, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. What I'm aware of is with the other instructions, so let's say the six commandments of the 10 that are about human relating, most of them are prohibitions. And they're pretty concrete and easy. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery. And there's one in there about being nice to your parents. And then there's the one I always forget, which is don't bear false witness. And then there's the summary one at the end, which uses this word, don't covet, right? And covet is one of these words that this is the only place in the English human language where it's ever used. Don't, it's never used in any other context other than when you're referring to commandment number 10, don't covet. And so it's kind of this religious-y word, it's just desire. Don't desire, don't want what you see that your neighbor has. Don't want that, right? <clears throat> so these are all pretty, I feel like I can understand them. These don'ts. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not quite sure how that's connected to them, but it throws me back on myself in a way that ends up being kind of complicated. Because all of a sudden I have to think, well, wait, I have to love my neighbor as I love myself. Well, first, I'm not even sure I love myself. <laughs> right? There are a lot of times when I don't like myself very much at all. <clears throat> and then I think, well, what does it mean to love myself, for me to love myself? Because what I hear the command saying there, this distillation of it is, love your neighbor as you would want 
to be loved. Love your neighbor as you would want that person to love you. And so it becomes this kind of complicated cognitive exercise of figuring all these things out. Reading books on psychology, on self-love, and what does self-love look like, and how does that map onto how other people might relate to me. And if I go to counseling or therapy, I might explore these things, and then I might come up with a system to apply. And I find myself in the same trouble as when I'm just trying to apply the rules themselves, all these laws and rules, another construct that's in my head that doesn't actually help in the moment. Maybe if I think about it long and hard and work out the systems, at some point down the road, I will behave differently in interactions with people that are fraught and full of conflict. But I don't know. I'm a person who kind of lives in my head and I can feel myself drawn back into that even with this simple instruction. So what I think Jesus might be after is actually something that's more direct, more visceral, that just jumps straight past all of my thinking, straight into an imagination practice that is useful in the moment, okay? And one example of this that will lead us back to love your neighbor as yourself comes from a story that Jesus tells. So in Matthew chapter 25, this is the last story that the writer presents to us before Jesus heads to the cross. So it's kind of his parting words, super important. It's a well-known story of his called the parable or the riddle of the sheep and the goats. The construct of the story is that a king, and in this case the king would be Jesus, you know, Jesus sort of standing in for the king, is making the final evaluation of people. How did you do in life? And based on how you did, there's a pretty dramatic difference in outcome. If you did well in life, you had to the good place, which we all know what that is now. If, if you did badly, you had somewhere else. And the metric is how you behaved towards certain groups of people who are traditionally diminished in power and standing, okay? How did you behave towards people who are imprisoned, towards people without clothing, without food, towards people who are without attachment to power, strangers? But the way Jesus communicates this is, again, not through systems or books or podcasts or an elaboration of thought, but with something much more direct. Jesus says this, all the nations will be assembled before the king and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and will set the sheep to his right but the kid goats to the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the cosmos for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you gave me hospitality. Naked, and you clothed me. I was ill, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to me. <laughs> the just will be understandably baffled, because this is the king talking. Then the just will answer him saying, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and give you hospitality or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you ill or in prison and come to you? And in reply, the king 
And again, this is Jesus standing before them, will say to them, amen. I tell you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my family members, you did it to me. And so it's this powerful use by Jesus of the human imagination to jump past thought constructs into something much more visceral and immediate. Because what Jesus is saying is when you are interacting with a person from one of these groups, I just want you to overlay your image of me onto them and then let that shape how you interact with them. Right? You, he's saying to his audience, you have a construct of me. You have a way of visualizing me. And that contains information about me, right? That contains thoughts about how you feel about me, who you think I am, what you think I'm like, how you perceive me to conceptualize humankind. I just want you to take that, and when you are looking at this other person, put it on them. (laughs) And I'm telling you, if you do it, if I do it, I have found it to be a powerful tool that shapes how I experience somebody. Because it cuts straight to the heart of things like inequity and otherizing and categorizing. If this person, instead of somebody who, because of their identity or their standing, is someone who I can categorize, and based on that categorization, treat them in a certain way, right? I have the system's validation for treating somebody poorly, because of the identity that they inhabit. If instead they suddenly become Jesus, that's a different thing. And if it's in the moment, it causes me to feel something differently than I would have otherwise felt. And so I take that construct back to what Jesus is talking about here. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think it's eminently possible that Jesus is wanting us to do the same kind of thought or imagination work with our neighbor. The text does not say, love your neighbor as you yourself would want to be loved. Love your neighbor in the same way that you yourself would want to be loved, so that we have to figure out all this stuff. It's love your neighbor as yourself. It's compact. It's tight. It's immediate. It's visceral. And so I think a possibility is that we do the same kind of imagination work. You, we all have a, an image of ourselves, Right? Whatever your image is of Jesus, that might be a little fuzzier, vague, um, more variable, shaped by experience or lack. You certainly have an image of yourself. <laughs> you look at yourself in the mirror at least occasionally. You know how old you are. You have a sense of your body. You all have a sense of your behavior, your life history. And the instruction of Jesus or the invitation is to take that and just in the moment, put it onto the person who's with you, who's in front of you, who's near you. Especially if it's a relationship that's a little bit fraught, where there's some conflict right now, where there's some tension. So before we go on, I just want to invite you to do it. Okay, we're just going to take a moment. And what I want you to do is think of a relationship with some fraughtness, which is all of them, right? There aren't any that don't have it. Even those you most dearly love, there are some aspects of who they are or what they're like that bug you. 
and you kind of wall that off. But there may be other relationships that are genuinely more fraught, where either, either there's power struggle or confrontation or conflict, something going on that you don't like that's complicated. Maybe you have hurt somebody and you don't know how to repair it. Maybe they've hurt you and you don't know how they're going to repair that. But just try this right now, okay? And then we'll just talk a little bit more about what my experience has been like, what yours might have been like. So pick a person. Imagine an interaction with them. Maybe a real one recently or just what it's like to be with them. And then take an image of yourself and put it onto them. So take that image of yourself, put it onto them, and then imagine the interaction going forward. So however much this produced an effect in you now, I'd really encourage you to try it. I have found it. So full disclosure, I've been doing this for about a week. Because, <laughs> you know, I have thought deeply about Jesus' invitation to imagine himself onto another person. But I really became stirred by this idea in this passage. Like, oh, I think that might be what Jesus is after here too. Something more visceral and immediate than thinking it through. And it's been pretty remarkable for me. So what happens for me is, at this stage in life for me, most of my interactions with other people, whether it's in family or the work setting, I have more standing. I just, I have, in the power dynamic, more power. And so, if someone makes me angry, I have a lot of justification from the system to treat them in certain ways, right? The system tells me they, behave, they behaved badly, therefore they deserve such and such a treatment. If I take my image of a, me and put it onto another person, things change really fast. The first thing that happens is I, <laughs> I just, I feel compassion. Right? right away, I feel compassion for another person. I think towards that person, I don't want you to feel like you're in trouble. I don't want you to feel ashamed. I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to feel there's hope that there's a way out, that we're on the same side, that we're not on opposite sides of some relational divide. Right? It's amazing. Now, it tells me a couple of things about myself really quickly. Like, this is how I want to be loved, right? <laughs> if I am loving somebody else, if I'm loving my neighbor as myself, what I'm learning is, oh, I don't like that experience within me. I don't want to be on the other side of a relational divide. I don't want to experience condemnation. I don't want to experience shame. But so in the moment with this other person with whom I'm acting, with whom I'm interacting, this is what's being stirred in me towards them. And it profoundly shapes the interaction. It shapes how I think and feel. It actually affects what I say. It feels like for me, this has the potential to do what Jesus is hoping it'll do, which is providing something now 
in this moment that I can bring into the interaction that is actually helpful in shaping what happens. Now I know, like it's not the final answer, it's one tool, it's one thing that you and I can employ as we're trying to navigate complicated social interactions, right? Because you're, impl- you're, you're bringing your construct of yourself, or even if it's a Jesus construct, you're bringing that construct, which is something you've developed, and you're putting it on another person who is not you. So it doesn't map perfectly, but it cuts through so much complicatedness. And it also produces, I think, what Jesus is after. Because if there is a trouble that all these rules are trying to undo, are trying to address, it is, one way of conceiving out of it is this categorization of labeling, of judgmentalness, of otherizing. When I otherize somebody, they are, by definition, other than me. And oftentimes, otherizing allows me to treat them in a certain way. There are rules that follow otherizing. But if I am seeing the other as myself, by definition, it is producing a form of equity. It is undoing those things. And so in the moment, the problem that so much of the text about human social relating is trying to solve is undone. And I'm also just, and I'll say this in closing, I feel to just the awareness that Jesus has of how you and I work, of our mental abilities, that we have this ability to imagine things. And it's amazing. It's a powerful ability to carry a concept of something in our heads and to be able to put that on to something else and to have that shape how we think and how we feel. And so the invitation this morning is to use this tool, to use this imagination tool, that when you and I are in interactions that we find complicated, where we are in fraught conflicts, where there's hurt, where there's harm, where you don't know what to do, where there is the potential to just follow rules or rubrics in terms of how to interact with each other, that one way to get to love is by imagining yourself on or in the other, is by imagining Jesus on or in the other, and let that affect how you relate. At least you'll learn something about your constructs of yourself and your constructs of Jesus.